a couple of weeks ago um, as we came to the end of uh, Luke's Gospel. Um, we were going to finish what we began last year, and that is uh, the book of Acts, which is sort of Luke's second uh, volume. Uh, and we've spent some time, actually, if you think about it, uh, in Luke and Acts, especially this service. If you've been coming to this service since the beginning of last year, we spent a lot of time uh, in Luke and Acts. Uh, but, but stay in there, hang in there, because um, actually next term we're going to be jumping into the deep end of the Old Testament. I'm sure you're all wondering where the deep end of the Old Testament is. Um, well, you better, you better come and you'll find out. But if you were new or unfamiliar with this part of the Bible, um, thank you in that little, little family spot. Thanks, Dave, for setting, us, setting the scene, I suppose. Um, Acts records what happens immediately after Jesus' life and, and death and resurrection. The disciples have been on a roller coaster of a journey throughout the Gospels, haven't they? Uh, but little do they know that actually their ride has only just begun. Acts tells some of the most thrilling stories ever told. We read of... Um, Miracles, visions, conversion stories. We read of uh, persecutions and riots, imprisonments and prison breaks. We read of snake bites and shipwrecks. And through all this, Acts tracks the spread of the message that Jesus lives and then he reigns and that salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And actually, right at the beginning of Acts, Jesus actually gives us a bit of a roadmap for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of this message. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we see the gospel advance along those lines. And uh, most of uh, Acts is, uh, follows Paul and his companions on various missionary journeys. Today we catch up with Paul, um, as Dave said, uh, toward the end of his third missionary journey. I'm not sure whether you can see this map too well. It doesn't particularly matter, but that is a sort of um, uh, part of the world in which this is all taking place. Uh, and actually in Acts 20, you might, have, you might have noticed as Dave read all the places of those names again. And that's because he covers quite a lot of ground just in this chapter alone. So actually, he, he sort of travels from Ephesus to Corinth, or close to Corinth, and back again. So this is a slightly zoomed-up version. Um, and, and the main, the main uh, uh, places today that I just want you to take a very brief note of is Ephesus there. Can you see Ephesus? Um, just south of Ephesus, uh, Miletus, and, of course, north of Ephesus, uh, Troas. And uh, as I said, we're catching up with Paul while he's still in Ephesus, which uh, was and, and will be an extremely influential city for all sorts of reasons. But before we reflect on Paul's ministry in Ephesus, um, so that we don't get distracted by it, I think we should cover uh, the incident in Troas. What happens in Troas? It's there in verses 7 through 12. A young man, a teenager most likely, um, named Eutychus, falls asleep in church. Um, now, he has had thousands of people follow in his footsteps. Um, but Eutychus, Eutychus is the one that everyone remembers. He's the first 
and he's the one everyone remembers because when Eutychus falls asleep, he falls. And Luke, the doctor, declares him dead. Now, I'm sure that none of us can relate to feeling sleepy in church. None of you, anyway, I'm sure. Um, A few weeks ago, uh, someone sent me a picture, um, and I'm sure he sent it seriously, actually. I don't think for him it was a joke, but I found it quite funny. Um, I'm not sure where that is, actually. But it's 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 a good one. Actually, Gary Miller, uh, who's the principal of uh, Queensland Theological College (QTC), um, which is the, the the training college for Presbyterian ministers in Queensland, he he co-wrote a book um, entitled "Saving Eutychus." Do you like that? "Saving Eutychus," and and the subtitle "How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake," and and the blurb reads. Poor Eutychus might have tumbled off his perch in Acts 20, but it's humbling to notice that what took Paul many hours of preaching to achieve, near fatal napping in one of his listeners, takes most preachers only a few minutes on a Sunday. Saving Eutychus will help you save your listeners from such a fate. Now, I've got to confess at this point, um, this book has been recommended to me, but I've not read it, and so I'm not sure how that makes you feel about the next 20 minutes or so. Um, but there you go. Look, these things, these things aside, um, which I think actually are all valid, broader reflections, the moral of this story is not that long sermons can kill you. Okay? Stay awake or else. That's, that's not the moral of this story. No, it shows us actually just how alive this little church was. Just how awake this little church was to, to their need to have God himself inform and shape their lives through his word. And we know this, of course, because Paul began preaching at sunset, preached until midnight, and then, of course, after, after it all happens, after Eutychus falls and dies and is raised to life, Paul continues preaching until daylight. But they were serious. I like to imagine Eutychus listening with a renewed sense of the the power of of the gospel and the reality of the gospel. Well, look, after that brief detour, which, as I said, I think it was important that we cover, um, we now turn to consider the church in Ephesus. And there's a little more to the story than what we read, and the hint there is the very first words of chapter 20, which read, when the uproar had ended. When the uproar had ended. If you recall... um, Wow, where, when would it have been? September last year. We covered Acts 19, so I'm expecting you all to remember that. Um, Ephesus was the home of, of the god Artemis, and, uh, and, and the temple Artemis, of course, being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is an enormous structure made of, made of pure marble. It would have stretched from, from about here until Zamia Theatre. Uh, I felt slightly self-conscious as I did so, but I measured it out. Okay? And when, in chapter 19, when, when the gospel comes to town, when Jesus meets Artemis, Jesus wins, and the gospel begins to sort of upset the status quo, and folk aren't too happy about it. And so we read, back in chapter 19, we read that about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which is sort of shorthand for Christianity. What was the nature of this disturbance? 
Theological, yes, but primarily actually commercial. The businesses around the, the temple of Artemis that made shrines and idols for worshippers began to suffer as people began to worship the unseen God. And so business owners stir up the Ephesians into a frenzy and for two hours the whole city, might be slightly exaggerated, for two hours the whole city shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And there's this huge riot that ends in this enormous theatre of thought to hold up to 24,000 people. And so that is where you pick up the story. That's where you pick up the story in Acts chapter 20. But now I want you to come with me um, to the end of Acts chapter 20 because now that we sort of have set the scene, Ephesus, probably a pretty rough and tough place to do ministry, come with me to the end of chapter 20 because at the end of chapter 20, Paul farewells the elders of Ephesus. Not in Ephesus itself, but close by in Miletus. And Luke captures the emotion of it all there in verses 36 and 38. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And then Luke continues, actually. After we had torn ourselves away from them. So clearly there's this sort of deep respect and affection. And of course it's because Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. Three years in Ephesus. Training up these, these elders. But now that he feels drawn to Jerusalem, though it might cost him his life, he now commissions them. And so I want to spend a little time, just, just in a couple of verses here in Acts chapter 20, particularly verses 26 through 31, those, those five verses there, where Paul addresses these elders, okay? Now, if you're sitting there and thinking, I'm not an elder, don't tune out, okay? Who knows what the consequences of that might be? Don't tune out because you need to hear these words too. He may be speaking to shepherds, but his words are for sheep too, if you will. And uh, FYI, the, the New Testament Greek word for uh, elder is presbyteros. Um, and being a Presbyterian church, it's this form of, we're named after that form of governance. That's where Presbyterian comes from. That's why it sounds so strange. Anyway, Paul begins there in verse 26. He says, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That might strike you as a bit of a, an abrupt way to start things. Perhaps a, bit, perhaps a bit harsh as well. But actually he's drawing from an Old Testament image where Ezekiel, the prophet of Ezekiel, is, is to serve as a watchman and, 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 and warn Israel of the impending judgment. And, and if the watchman speaks and the people do not listen to the warning, well then the, their blood will be on their heads. But... The opposite is also true. If the watchman does not speak and the people are killed, then their blood will be on the watchman's head. But Paul is saying, look, my conscience is clear. He has been a faithful watchman. And he encourages the elders at Ephesus to be the same and to do the same, to teach and to warn. 
And he describes the elders as, as shepherds of, of their flock. And once again, that image has deep Old Testament roots. In Ezekiel, Israel is described as God's special flock. And, and Israel's leaders as their shepherds, although they fail spectacularly. And so God himself becomes their shepherd. And of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. And yet, that image of shepherd, that image endures, right? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago before Easter, we covered the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus first meets Peter again and then, and then we, we, uh, we, we travel back to, to John where Jesus has this conversation with, with Peter. And what does he say? And Peter, who's, by the way, representative of, of all Christian leaders, I suppose, after Christ, what does Jesus say? He says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so Paul's message to these Ephesian elders is to, is to keep watch over the flock, which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. And there are three ways, right, in which they are to do so. Three ways in which they are to keep watch over their flock. And by the way, these apply to elders today. These apply to your elders, to our elders. First, in verse 28, it's fascinating. The first thing that Paul says to them, they must keep watch over themselves. They must keep watch over themselves. And so in this way, they were called to be sheep before they were called to be shepherds. They must guard their own hearts. Elders cannot, they cannot care for others if they neglect the care and the culture of their own souls. Hence why Paul puts it, number one. So I want to encourage you to pray for your elders. Pray for your elders here that they might do justice and encourage them in it. How can you encourage your elders in the care and, cult, uh, uh, care and culture of their own souls? Second, they, they must be on guard for dangers from without, right? And so Paul, Paul warns of this in verse 29. I know that I, after I leave, he says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to be watchful over the sheep, yes, but also to be watchful against the wolves. Now, we don't have shepherds these days, in Australia at least. We don't have wolves these days. Um, in Australia, we have dingoes, we have, we have foxes. Um, my family runs a sheep farm out in central New South Wales and and in every paddock in which they have sheep, particularly around lambing season, they also have one or two alpacas, those sheep with long necks. Does anyone know why? Thank you, Anna. You would know too. Thank you so much. That's exactly right. Um, it's thought that sort of alpacas actually adopt flocks of sheep and they're young where a sheep will run away when danger comes. Alpaca will, will actually uh, protect them from prey, such as foxes. And so at the risk of mixing metaphors, elders are to be alpacas. Hold them to this. Not in every way, right? We're not just spitting your faces. <laughs> yeah. But in this way, we're to protect you from predators. Okay. 
third. The elders must be on guard for dangers from within. And so Paul continues there in verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Friends, Satan loves to subvert from within. And so this is very important. There is no point in developing this... um, developing this sort of fortress mentality around the church, assuming all to be well. Because, of course, enemies are to be found both outside and inside the flock, and history proves this to be true. So Paul's message to the elders was, was be vigilant. Now, at this time, right, just after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Ephesus was actually a very healthy church. But Paul was not naive. His warning was actually prophetic. Less than 10 years later, in Ephesus, an unhealthy teaching emerged in the Ephesian church that Paul instructed Timothy to deal with. And then years later, the Ephesian church struggled with an outbreak of teaching that the Apostle John fought in his letters. And of course, the risen Lord Jesus himself would say of the church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the thing you did at first. The warnings are real. The dangers are real. And elders, as pastors and and overseers of the local church, they bear a lot of responsibility. Of course, the partial oversight of the church belongs ultimately to God himself. We know this, right? Indeed, actually, each of the three persons of the Trinity has a share in this oversight. If you notice, the the church, first, the church of God, the church is God's church, which Jesus purchased by his blood. And this church, which belongs to God and has been bought by Christ, the Holy Spirit appoints overseers. And so the oversight is his, right? Otherwise, he could not delegate as he has, and yet delegate he has. Now, we've only just scanned over um, what is perhaps one of the most outrageous verses in the Bible. I wonder if, I wonder if you picked up on it. I wonder if it made you feel slightly uncomfortable, as it has others. So Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. You notice what Paul did not say? You notice what he did say? How can Paul say such a thing? That, that God, that God bought his people with his blood. To most, this is nonsensical. To some, this is offensive. Say to the Muslims, completely offensive. But the concept of God having and shedding blood was so shocking that actually some of the earliest scribes who were copying this down, they they edited it. They, They changed it. They changed it to read the church of the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. 
And yet that is not what we read. That is not what Paul said. The best evidence is that Paul doesn't say Iesus, which is a Greek word for Jesus. He says Theos, God. It makes us slightly uncomfortable because it's so outrageously amazing. It's outrageously amazing that the divine son not only assumed human nature, he appropriated our humanity and he suffered and he died. And in this way, God bled. Actually, we sing of it. We sing of it in one of history's greatest hymns. In 1738, Charles Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Outrageous. For some, this, this hymn is insanely scandalous. But for us, it's infinitely precious. Because, of course, it is only because God became one of us and suffered and died that he could rescue us and that he can help us. That Paul uses this language is, is no mistake. It's no mistake. And that God, that God bought, right? Bought has the idea of making one's own. That is God's commitment to make us his own. And he does so by paying the ultimate price. And you know what this all means, right? It means that you are valuable. You are valuable. You you, you were bought at a price. And the one who bought you keeps you, which means you were valued. Not, you weren't just once valuable. You were valued. You were loved. And friends, this is true of you. This is true of you, but it's also true of your brothers and sisters. It is true of us. Yes, even us, right? Even this motley crew up here at Tambourine Mountain, myself included, it's true of us. Which, friends, at the very least, should give us a new appreciation for one another, shouldn't it? I want to close with Paul's words here in verse 32. What is, what is Paul's benediction to these Ephesian elders. Now I commit to you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, his final words to these Ephesian elders which apply to elders, which apply to you if you're a Christian, stick close to God and stick close to his word. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word and for all that it has to, all that it means for us and, and 
communicates to us about who you are and what you've done. And we thank you today of that image of the sheep and shepherds and we thank you that in Jesus you've, you are the good shepherd. And so we do pray for our elders as we did earlier this evening. We pray that you might build them up to be faithful shepherds, faithful under-shepherds. And we thank you that you've bought us, your church, with your blood. And we thank you that this means that you love us and cherish us. And we pray that we might internalise this for ourselves, but also in the way that we relate to others, in the way we think of others. May this truth sink deeply into our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen.